and welcome to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. This is the podcast which ponders Jewish mothers should every home have one. My name is Angela Epstein. And I'm Elopian. And today we're without our third wheel, Lynn Dover, who unfortunately couldn't make it. So uh, she'll be with us another time. And today we've got a very special guest. Um, we're delighted to welcome Tanya Duman. Hi. Hello, Tanya. Now, Tanya is a portrait photographer, a mum of five. But actually, Tanya, when people say you're a mother of, do you hesitate when you say mother of five? So I never hesitate except when you just ask me. (laughs) And then I think, well, actually, if people say how many babies have you had or how many kids have you got? Well, I'll usually just say five because it's easier just to give a short answer. But often people will say, oh, she's had five babies. And I'll say, no, actually, I've had six. And that's really why we're here today, to discuss a subject that is a little bit of a taboo, but Tanya, you amazingly, although it was not um, a situation that you would ever want in a million years to have experienced, are keen that people shouldn't shy away from discussing in the way that hopefully people can be helped, can learn from it, and maybe we can all learn how to support each other, and in a broader sense, how to support each other through loss when loss is a difficult thing. And we've learned, haven't we, through maternal wisdom of we've known in the past that Jewish mothers often have a, a tremendous sort of hold there when when it comes to supporting in loss. Very much so. It's that warmth, it's that nurturing, and often they've, of course, undergone their own losses. So there's a lot of empathy. Not only have we undergone personal losses, often within the community, because it's a community on the whole that cares, and of course, sadly, history too. So we feel we ought to know how to, but each experience is different, individual, and each Jewish mother is different too. So today you'll hear it through our prism. Absolutely. Now, um, Tanya, back in 2009, you were 38 weeks pregnant with your fourth baby. And tell us what happened. It was quite a poignant date because it was New Year's Eve. So it was the 31st of December 2008, stroke 1st of January 2009. And we were expecting to have the baby sometime in January. So I was 38 weeks pregnant. And I remember we had gone out for a meal. It was my friend's birthday. So we'd gone to the local kosher Chinese restaurant. And I remember I had a big meal. And I came home and it just struck me that I'd eaten so much food and I hadn't felt any movement because normally, you know, when you're pregnant, you eat and then you feel a lot of kicking, a lot of moving. So I also remember it was snowing that night because it was it was New Year's Eve. It was very cold. My friend dropped me home from the dinner and we were just sitting in the car talking about baby names and watching the snow come down. So I went inside and I said to my husband, it's very strange. Like I've had this huge meal and I don't feel any movement. But I had been to the hospital two nights before because um, I had a little bit of pain and they had assured me everything was fine. The baby was fine. Everything was, you know, everything was great. So he said to me, I'm sure you're fine. I'm sure you're fine. Just um, take a glass of ice cold water because it was so cold outside. I remember thinking, I'll just take it straight from the tap. So I drank it. Nothing happened. It was about um, one o'clock in the morning and um, Mark had fallen asleep. So I thought, I'll just leave him. Um, I called the hospital and they said, you know what, get the radio, put it up really loud, put it on your tummy and that will wake up the baby. And if that doesn't work, get a can of Coke full of sugar, that will do it. So I did both these things. By this time, it was maybe two o'clock in the morning and still nothing was moving. So I thought, I don't really want to wake up Mark because I already woke him up two nights ago and everything was fine. So I'll just drive down to the hospital and everything will be fine and, and I won't bother waking him. 
So I just have very vivid memories of that night. I remember driving into St. Mary's Hospital. I remember the snow was coming down and the roads were very peaceful. And I just had a really nice drive. I just remember the music that I was listening to in the car. Um, and I got into St. Mary's Hospital and I went straight back up to the same bay that I'd been in two nights before. So I went in and I kept thinking, should I call Mark? And I thought, it'll be fine. I don't want to wake him up. It's now three o'clock in the morning. And I just kept thinking the pregnancy, I was in and out of hospital the whole time. And I thought, you know, nobody else needs to be awake for what's going on. It'll be fine. So I got into hospital and they put me in the same bay, actually, that I'd been in two nights before. And a trainee midwife came and she explained that she was training, but she can put the pads on the stomach where they can hear the heartbeat. So she did that and we couldn't hear anything. And I remember that two nights before, before they even put the pads on my stomach, I could hear the heart before it even touched. I could hear this loud beating. So she was a bit nervous and she said, I'm just training, I'll just get somebody else. So she found another midwife and they put it on and there was no noise. And they kept saying, I'm sure it's fine. They were trying to reassure me. And I said, no, I was here two nights before and it was booming. So, you know, this is not there's something not right so they said actually we've got a scanning machine in the other room we'll take you straight through and we'll scan you and at this point I thought should I wake up Mark and I thought but if I wake him up and everything's fine then you know I'm fine everything you know it's okay that's classic Jewish mother behavior isn't <laughs> yes. it well I just thought what's Protecting. the point of disturbing somebody's sleep if everything's fine but what were you going through by then so at that point I was just like let's just get this done let's just get this You're done focused on the practical and just yeah. getting an answer I'm very like that I, I have very little patience and if something's bugging me I just have to get to the bottom of it so that's what I did they, they um, took me into the scanning room and they did a scan and you could just see the kind of look and then I thought should I call my husband <laughs> so um, I could see the looks on their face and they said we just actually have to get a doctor to come and have a look so at this point I called home and I said to Mark um, I think there's something wrong I'm not sure what it is but can you just get to the hospital and he called my mum and she went Good to the house so um, so obviously you know he's like flying down the road so then a doctor came in and said to me I'm very sorry we don't know why but there's no heartbeat and I guess like we're talking about a fully formed six and a half pound baby. So, you know, it's quite major. Um, and he said, but protocol is that we need two doctors to verify that there's no heartbeat. So I said, well, let's just wait till my husband comes. And then because I was kind of thinking maybe, maybe eventually Mark came and he was very, very nice. Um, he was my um, doctor from the hospital and it was New Year's Eve. So wherever he was, he came in at four in the morning and um your and they, consultant you my mean? consultant wow. came in um who had been with throughout the pregnancy and because he he said i got a phone call and we'd had quite a difficult pregnancy and he said after everything you've been through i can't believe that this is what's going you know happened. is what's happening so he came in and mark was there and he said i'm very sorry to say but there is no heartbeat and we don't know why but when you deliver we should know more so i think you know we were in shock but i just looked at him and i said when i deliver I said, no, 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 you're going to put me to sleep and then you're just going to take this baby, you know, give me a cesarean. And he said, I know that's what you want, but hopefully you're going to have more children. You've never needed a cesarean before, so there's no reason to give you one now. We'll, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you all the pain relief that you need, but you need to have a normal delivery. They actually then said to me, it was a Friday morning, he said, if you need time to think about this, go home over the weekend, have a think about it, and when you're ready come back and we'll do it because I guess every woman's different and people you know some people need longer to process what's going on I had this feeling of I need to deal with this right now and also 
I've got a baby inside that's not alive. I can't go anywhere or do anything. Like I have, you know, we have mm. to have this baby. So they said, fine. And whatever I wanted, I, you know, no, no wish was too great. They said, fine, we'll take you down straight away. Um, my husband was still in shock and denial because our faith is very strong. He kept thinking, God, Hashem can do anything and, and it could all be wrong. And the whole way through the labor and everything, he, he still kept saying, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. You know, it's not over till it's over. Mm. Um, but by that point, they'd given me so much pain relief. I was a little bit out of my tree. So um, they, they said, because the baby is not alive, you can have what's morphine. Very, morphine. Can have, yeah. So they gave me morphine. So I was, con- which in a way was a gift because... Mm. Um, it's a very, very traumatic thing to have to go through. And the morphine just, you know, took me to a different place. So I was very anesthetized. And they also had a part of the hospital. This was the old St. Mary's. They've now got a beautiful... St. Mary's in Manchester. St. Mm. <laughs> so Mary's, the, the the new hospital is absolutely beautiful. Um, the old one, well, it needed, it, after, I think after that month, it was taken down. So it was it, not it particularly a nice hospital. Yes. <laughs> but they had like a special room right away from all the other mothers and laborers so that you shouldn't hear babies crying you know so they put me somewhere else and they gave me all the pain relief that I needed I think it wasn't such a long labor maybe four or five hours later um we had a baby girl could I could I just stop and ask you there Tanya the fact that they put you into labor but you you had so much pain relief and stuff presumably you weren't experiencing labor as such you you couldn't feel you, you didn't have to endure labor pains did you um well when they do the initial induction um, it comes very fast. I know people, all you know, women are induced all the time. For some people, it takes two, three times. For some people, it's very slow. It takes a day. For me, as soon as they induced me, I went into like hard labor, and it was, you know, it, like any other labor. The difference with this was though it was harder because the baby wasn't moving its way down. The baby wasn't moving, and so as soon as the pain got too much, they gave me an epidural and they gave me. They gave me everything, anything that I wanted. They would they would give me a cocktail if I'd asked for one. Yes. <laughs> they gave me anything. So the labor, I'd say the labor was exactly the same as all the other labors that I've had. So you had to lie there for five or so hours. Being a Jewish mother already, or being any kind of mother, or any human being, we always say about the podcast, this is not about, this is not for Jewish mothers. It's what we've learned from Jewish mothers as a specific breed, if you like. What instincts were kicking in? So it's very funny that you ask because bearing in mind, I did have a lot of anesthesia in me, but there were lots of things which were coming out the whole time. It was going to be New Year's Day and we had invited three couples over for lunch. And I remember the whole way through the labor shouting to Mark, you have to call them, you have to tell them this one's bringing bagels and that one's bringing fruit and you must tell them not to come and they shouldn't go out and buy the food. It's going to be such a waste. So you're worrying, you're worrying, you're being protective (laughs) for other people that they should be schlepping about doing things for you when they don't need to. I I also wanted to ask you, sorry, take you back a little bit. You said like Mark and you were on different wavelengths, dare I say that, both of you having a strong Jewish faith, but you being the pragmatic one, the practical one, and in all your life getting things done, and the same with this, but Mark still holding on to hope. Was it difficult for you having to protect Mark or Mark not being on the same page Page. as you, him all the time saying, was it an irritant or were you too out of it in a way, Um, thanks to the morphine, to 
to care or to have because you were obviously protecting thinking that you were still being pragmatic in a way I suppose that's almost your security blanket as much of an effort it is you were still being Tanya even though you were going through a major trauma I think when it comes to like giving birth and also just being female I think that we well I can speak for myself that I was in my own zone as soon as they said to me there was no heartbeat I knew it was over and I knew that this baby wasn't alive and that I was going to have to deliver this baby. Whereas for Mark, it was all very kind of, he couldn't feel anything. He didn't have this baby inside of him. So for him, it was more abstract and it was all just let's hope, let's hope, let's hope. But I think during the whole labor, we were just in totally different zones because he was secretly sort of praying, let this be okay. And I was just sort of praying, you know, please let this baby come out. I knew it was over. And I just had to get through my journey. I couldn't really deal with his at the time. Can we ask you, when the baby was born, had you, in the time that you were waiting during labour, because, how God forbid, anybody should be have to prepare themselves for this situation, had you thought in your head or been directed by the nursing and staff and the doctors as to what would happen once the baby was born, whether you would want to see... You, you knew it was a little girl? No, I didn't know. Right. I didn't know if it was... We had... A girl and two boys. So my daughter actually said to me, if it's another boy, just please don't bring it home. (laughs) She just had enough. Um, Um, But had you told yourself, I definitely want to see this baby once it's born? or, Or were you not in a position to start processing how you would be once the baby was born? I just want to say that things are very different now. It's been 12 years ago and I've read so many articles of people who've gone through um, stillbirth. The equipment they have in the hospital post-birth is very different to what they Mm. had then. But during the labor, I was given an epidural, which made me very sleepy. So I actually remember falling asleep and then waking up and turning to Mark and saying, can we just do this now? Like it'd been quite a long time. And then they said, oh, you might be ready to push. So I think I slept through most of it, but then I woke up with this awful dread of, something major I have to do I I need to do it now yes um so I didn't think about what was going to happen when the baby was born because I just none of us really knew what was going on and and we were just in like such shock we were just getting on with it but when she was delivered she came out and the midwife said to me immediately oh there it is and we both said there is what and she said I can see we can see why why she passed away and they saw that her little ankle, the umbilical cord had knotted around her ankle. Oh my gosh. Which is what they call a cord accident, where the baby actually gets tangled in the umbilical cords. And there, there's nothing you can do. It's I'd been in the hospital two days before and everything was fine. It was literally from one minute to the next. So her little foot was black and blue because if you think the cord was so mm-hmm. tight around the foot and as soon as it knotted, that was, you know, that was the end of the heartbeat. So as soon as she came out, so she came out and she was perfectly formed absolutely beautiful she looked exactly like my daughter who was 10 at the time and she came out and immediately you know they wrapped her up in the blanket and they weighed her and then I just said can I hold her I know different people have had very different experiences after that I've spoken to lots of people some people couldn't bear to look they didn't want to know and everyone goes through their own journey with this for me I was like oh it's my baby you know and because when she was born she was perfect I remember looking at her little ears and thinking it's such a shame that they made them so perfectly beautiful and they're never going to get used you know everything there was no deformity in any way um, I remember holding her and because she'd just been born she was warm like she wasn't alive but she felt alive yes and we held her I didn't want to let go of her we held her probably for about half an hour and my husband held her as well 
and then it occurred to me she's not alive and she's going to start not looking so alive after a while because that's what happens with the body and I was nervous that I would have a picture in my mind of her not looking gorgeous so I said to them can you take her and maybe bring her back later but um, you know I was just I didn't know how long she was just going to stay looking like she was a sleeping baby um, and this was the time before smartphones so the we had, I, remember, I did have a phone, it did take pictures. It was, you know, one of the earlier, it was definitely before the smartphone. So um, they asked, do you want to take photos? And I didn't really know what I wanted. I said, do what you want. Um, so they took her away. And then when they took her away, I wanted her back. But they said that we, you know, they put the babies in like a cool room so that the body should stay. And then a few hours later, my mum came. My mum really wanted to see her. So they brought her back. And this is also where I felt like being Jewish, it was not a great experience. They brought her back in, in a crib that had like ribbons and bows and everything all around her. And they'd put her in this outfit and they had like sparkles and it was all very, they like mm. wheeled her in and you look inside this beautiful crib and you know, there's the, a the baby that's not alive. And mm. then she came and I just said, please just, you know, I said, no, mm. I don't want to remember her like this. Like we, we don't do this, we don't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, obviously, different religions choose to do it in different ways and that there's no right or wrong. But obviously, for you, who has such a, a strong sense of your Jewish identity, that was very difficult for you. And because of the way things are done in the Jewish religion, we uh, don't hang around, to put it colloquially, do we, when <laughs> no. somebody passes away? Um, there's no sense of, of waiting or any kind of wake, if you like. Did you find that a source of comfort or difficult that you knew that it wouldn't be long before the baby who you named? Yeah. She was called? She was called Naama, which means pleasant. Um, in Hebrew? In Hebrew. And what was interesting was that that night when we left the restaurant, um, my friend, my friend Lucy, drove me home from the restaurant to my house in the snow. And we were talking about baby names and she had given me a book of baby names and we were laughing because the first name in this book was Aaron. And one of her kids is called Aaron and I was laughing. I was saying, you didn't even get past the first page, you know? <laughs> so then I actually, I think probably when I was sitting waiting, you know, for this baby to start kicking, I started looking um, through the names and I'd written down three names and I'd put them in my pocket that night. And so when... I'd had her about six hours later. The Chaver Kadisha came because the Chaver Kadisha are they are the burial society. So they come to the hospital to take the baby, um, because you know we believe that burials happen usually within twenty four hours of death. Yeah. So they came to the hospital, and I felt very relieved when they came because I didn't like the fact that she was in a cool room in a sterile hospital. I wanted her to like, you know, be with somebody. So they came to take her, and they said, "Oh, do you have a name?" And I think Mark said no. And I said, I think I've got a few in my pocket. So we, I can't oh, remember what the other names were, but it just so happened that and that name was there. And, um, and we gave it to them. And they actually said to us, I said, well, you know, where are you taking her? Where is she, where is she going to be buried? And in Manchester, the Hever Kadisha that we used, MH, they, their sort of policy is that they take the baby and they bury the baby in the Whitefield Cemetery. And she is buried amongst in the children's cemetery there amongst the children. And there was a very great man in Manchester who was the Rosh Yeshiva of He's Manchester. He's the, the head of the boys' seminary, the learning seminary. Um, so when he passed away, everyone assumed that he'd be buried in Israel because that's where most holy people are buried. But he said, my whole life has been looking after children. I want to be buried next to the children's cemetery. So they said to me, you shouldn't worry. You know, she's, she'll be in a very special place. And did the burial take place 
without you. Yeah, so the policy again is that she is buried in an unmarked grave, so I don't know exactly where she is. And at the time, that was very difficult for me. I kept saying, what do you mean you're not telling me where she is? Um, I'm sure if I pressed and pressed, they would have told me. I've realized since then the wisdom of these people that they took her and they buried her. Now, I had a couple of friends who went through similar things with me, not so far on in the pregnancy, but they wanted to know where the baby was buried. They wanted to have a funeral. They wanted to have a ceremony. And then they kept going back to the grave and back to the grave. And they couldn't move forward with their lives because they kept going backwards. I knew approximately where she was, but I didn't know exactly where she was buried. I, I started looking forward. As much as I was healing from her, I didn't keep going back to any grave. I started looking forward with my life and I feel that that was a massive, massive help that I didn't know exactly where she was buried. Right. That was ultimately their wisdom and act of kindness. Very to much allow so. you to heal, to help you to heal and to carry her with you in your heart wherever you go and not a physical place to return to, as it were. Yeah, and I did apologise mm. to them because when they came to the hospital to take her and I said, what do you mean you're not telling me? And they said, we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Don't worry about it just now. I don't think I was very polite. But then I realised what kindness they did for me because I saw other people really struggling and making you know funerals and, and going back to graves and then wanting to move all things that went on I didn't have to deal with any of that I could just look forward how did you tell your children which must have been hard your parents your friends the community unfortunately Mark my husband had to go through that because I was still in the hospital so he went home and he got the kids from school my parents came in that night so he picked up the kids from school and it was very interesting the way he told each of them because their ages were different our daughter you know she obviously you know she was crying and my husband was crying when he was telling her and my son as well who I think was eight at the time also found it quite difficult the younger one was like oh okay well can I go back to watching whatever he was watching at the <laughs> yeah. time so yes. I feel like each one dealt with it in a very age-appropriate way I felt that when I came home from the hospital that I had gone through birth even though I didn't have a baby and so I wanted to just you know let my body heal and let my mind heal and I had sort of two weeks kind of in bed where I just took it very easy and then people would come so my kids would see that um, as, as word got around again it was before WhatsApp and everyone sort of telling everybody news so people would start bringing in food I got lots and lots and lots of handwritten letters which I've still got in a box Could you bear to see people in those two weeks? It took a while and what was so interesting was that I think apart from one friend that I have I think maybe 12 or 13 of like let's say at the time my closest friends they were all having babies and mm. they felt very nervous to come in either mm. they were pregnant or they had just had a baby but I just kept saying to them it's fine it's fine because I don't want your baby mm. <laughs> yeah. I want my baby and I really got a lot of comfort from people also yeah I got comfort from my grandparents from my parents and um, my siblings everyone was very very supportive it's interesting that sometimes people will listen to, uh, I'm loath to call it a story, this is somebody's life, but they will listen to a situation like this. And unfortunately out there in the world, amongst the very wonderful people who understand acts of kindness, we can sometimes get competitive suffering, which was something my late mum used to say, you know, you must never try and compete, well, this is one of her great wisdoms about competing one piece of suffering against another, each drop of blood is important, whether it's in one scenario or another. But I'm just wondering as a sort of poor man's devil's advocate, because you'd had a family of three children, was there ever a sense amongst um, some people that 
Well, you'll be able to get over this quickly because A, you're young and B, it's not like it was your first baby or you've been trying forever to have a baby. Did you ever pick up on any of that? I didn't feel it from other people, but I felt it very much from myself. Like I kept saying to people, I know, I know, I know I'm lucky. I know I'm blessed. We've got three children. And I know it wasn't hard for me to be, you know, to become pregnant because there are people who wait for so long and then things don't go well. Um, so for me, I kept sort of saying, I'll be okay, it's okay. I, I, I kept saying to other people, I know I'm blessed, I know I'm blessed. Um, or people would say to me things like, oh, a similar thing happened to me, but I was only at 20 weeks, or it wasn't as bad as you because it was <sighs> da-da-da. Yeah. And then I, I felt very much that it doesn't matter what stage you're at, loss is loss. You know, I would say, look, she was just a newborn baby. It's not like she was a child who was 21. If someone came in and their daughter had passed away at 21. So I just feel loss is loss, whether it was at 20 weeks or full term or, you know, a few years after. And and you can't really measure loss. It affects everybody differently. So people were very sensitive around me. There was also that I would go out afterwards and people hadn't heard and they would see that I wasn't pregnant and they'd say, oh, you've had a baby, what have you had? And then I would feel very apologetic that I had to give them bad news. I'd say, that's oh. So that's the Jewish protective <laughs> mother, which is what we talk about, is you're protecting their feelings when you've undergone this catastrophic loss. So were, I'd, were I there any to... comments that really jarred you or that really irritated or hurt? Yes, of course, nobody of wants course. to do that, but there must be some. Yeah, there's always comments. I had one when I was telling somebody that I'd been in hospital a couple of nights before and she said, oh, don't you just wish you'd gone in and say, just take the baby out now, then this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> it's, yes. I hear you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She probably kicked herself all the way home because often we go into these situations and we mean to say the right thing Very and much. we just go like, bleh. You know? Exactly. Like, Absolutely. It does. And, um, and in terms of facing outwards, because as you said, very sorrowfully but wisely at the beginning that you have had six babies not five and it's not you can never replace one person for another in any any sphere of loss how soon did you start thinking I want to have Mm. more children yeah people ask me that a lot so I went to the doctor after three months I have like a three-month check so I went to my obstetrician in the hospital the one that had come in the middle of the night and what they do is they go through everything. They go through all the charts of when you came into hospital, like when I was in two nights before, and then when I came in that night, and um, they go through everything. I guess like a sort of post-mortem of, you know, do we understand what happened? And he went through everything and he said, everything was absolutely perfect. This really was a court accident. And I said to him, although I've been through this trauma, and, and it really was like a trauma, I think, <laughs> When people are there having a bad day, I would never ever say this out loud, but I, a part of me wants to say, you go through labor with, with you know, the baby that's not alive. There's nothing, yeah. I, I can't think of many yeah. worse things. Not that I'm comparing bad things, but it was awful. So after this happened, I said to the doctor, we wanted to have a baby. We came home empty handed and we, we, you know, we're still wanting to have another baby. So what do I do? And he said, I think there are really, he said, I experienced two schools of, of parents, one who don't want to have another baby because they feel it's too soon to dishonor the memory of the one that they've had. So, you know, they wait and they wait until they feel ready. And then there are others who feel that their arms are empty and they're, you know, they're waiting for their baby. So they just want to go and have another one. And he said, after three months, you know, if you want to try again, there's no reason why you can't. He didn't tell me about my pelvic floors um, (laughs) and how that would affect having two babies within a year. But I left the hospital 
Mark and I had a little conversation. <laughs> Phone just, Mark. Just a conversation. <laughs> Phone Mark said, come on, Murdy. <laughs> so, um, so, so, yeah, so three months after we lost um, Naama, um, I found out I was pregnant and my due date was going to be the 1st of January oh God. 2010. Oh my gosh, Tanya. So what did so, you do? How did you deal with that fact? Yeah, so first of all, we were over the moon, you know, and thank God it came so easily to me. It's, it's you know, I'm blessed a thousand times over that that's, that's not a, um, a challenge that, that I've had in my life. So throughout the pregnancy, I was a mess. Um, even though statistically a cord accident happening, I don't know what this, I can't remember what statistics are, but it happening once is, is one in a mil, whatever, some sort of millions, and then happening twice just doesn't happen. But I just kept going for scans all the time because mm. I was convinced this baby was going to get in a tangle. Did they understand that? Did they offer you scans readily or did you have yeah. to push or were they supportive and sympathetic? Presumably you had the same doctor, the yes. same obstetrician. Yes, the same doctor. They have in the hospital, there's an organisation called SANDS, which is for stillbirth. I'm not entirely sure what. It's S-A-N-D-S. And they have a little sticker with like a mother holding a baby. And if you've had a stillbirth, they put that sticker on all your notes. Oh, right. So even before they've opened your notes, the doctors and the nurse, they're all midwives are very sensitive to what you've been through. So whenever I would come into hospital, they'd say, whatever you need is fine with us. And I also said to the doctor, I don't think I can go through Groundhog Day again. I can't, mm. if it's going to be the same timeline and the same time of year and everything, um, and he said, it's fine, we will induce you two weeks early, which I was just right. so made up about because who wants to go through the last three weeks of pregnancy? Yeah. Um, so I had a date that, that I was going to be induced. So we had um, a little boy who's now 12, not so oh. little. And he was born on the 15th of December. 2000. So the same year I had a baby on the 1st of January and then another one on the 15th of December. And did the fact that you had a little boy having lost a little girl, I know you were absolutely thrilled and grateful that you'd had a healthy baby and thank god everything yeah. had gone to plan but that kind of micro analysis which goes underneath the gratitude which just makes us human Correct. when we, we we shouldn't even be looking further was there a relief or was it not even relevant to consider the gender so there were two things the first thing was that when i was pregnant i felt a little bit embarrassed just in my own head, it was all my own thinking. I kept thinking, people are going to see that I'm pregnant and think, oh, she, it, you know, the other one didn't work out, so she's having another one, you know? And so I kind of hid my pregnancy for quite a long time. And it was just it was just silly thinking in my own head. Nobody was thinking that. Everyone was probably thinking, I'm so glad she's having another baby. But for me, I felt, you know, it was a bit like, oh, well, that one didn't work out. So, we'll, so there was that aspect to it. And then I also did find out what I was having because we'd had a girl and then two boys. So I found out at the 12 week scan, they told me it was a little boy and I was in denial. And I said, I think, no, you must be wrong. I said, I've lost a girl, I'm definitely having a girl. So then I went for a private scan and she said, no, it's a boy. And it's very hard to admit because obviously all you want to have is a healthy baby. But, you know, we were thinking, oh, two girls, two boys, our family's complete. And in a way, I wish I hadn't found out because what I came to realise was that when you have that baby, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl, you just absolutely love it. And so I spent a lot of, spent maybe six months of my pregnancy thinking, oh, shame, it's not a girl. And then he was born and he was just the most delicious thing. So the whole thing was, you know, it was pointless to find out. But you've had a little girl since then, haven't so you? So then we had, oh. so Tal, that was um, our little boy that was born who's coming up to 12 and then I don't know what happened because I'm just not very good at managing babies but um and then I was pregnant again and what was the age gap 
um, 22 months and I just kept saying to my husband what we're we doing like because our first two were very close together and I, I nearly lost my mind so you know so I had work, so I had yeah. like a three-year gap and then there was a five-year gap and then I was like what what are we doing like and Mark said we'll all be fine we'll all be good we were in a different position we could afford more help my daughter was coming up 12 like we you know I had a little yes. pair of, I had had help so I don't know what we were doing but we were just kind of high on having babies you know so mm. we had 22 months later and I did not find out what we were having I kept thinking if I find out what we're having then I'm going to go through this whole disappointment and it's pointless so if I don't find out there's always a chance it could be a girl and at that point my daughter said I don't mind if it's a boy you can bring it home <laughs> how did you feel she was a bit older so when when you when you had what she called your little girl so our little girl is called Sarah um, after my grandma Sadie and when she was born and they said it's a girl and I just remember I just could not stop crying I mean it was just like we felt like life had just come full circle and um, we'd been on a very long journey so we'd started with a girl we'd had two boys and then Nam had passed away and then a boy so when Sarah came it was just like the absolute icing on the cake and um, I have a sister who's got five children it's just me and my sister and she has got five boys oh, oh wow <laughs> <laughs> so it starts with my daughter then between my sister and I we've had eight boys and then Gosh. I had Sarah so when I had my daughter, my, my sister called me up crying and she said, she said, I'm so happy for you. She said, I'm a little bit sad for myself, but I'm so happy that you've had a girl. Um, well, Noemi's got four girls. Yeah, you two are married, so uh, they're not all available. That's why she looks so young, because she hasn't brought up so. boys. I don't think so. Always said the boys are for their mums, I imagine. Oh, they? Gosh. They look, my girls look after their dad, always say. So. But the tears, they were tears of joys tears of perhaps remembering Naama just everything well, everything together all our babies mm-hmm. look the same they all come out with the same you know they always say if they were lost on the street they know where to bring them home <laughs> so when she was born I just looked at her and it was like looking at Malka it was like looking at Naama it was just another demon and it was just I don't know I just suddenly felt that I felt this immense feeling of gratitude and I felt an immense feeling of completion that our family is complete did you feel in yourself that wholesomeness too? Did you feel that you started to get inner peace? And how have you dealt with the loss since then? Or how have you moved on, dare I say? Because there was some sort of guilt when you fell pregnant again yeah. after Nama. I guess when these sort of things happen in life, you become part of a club that you don't necessarily want to be a, a member of. Yeah. So whatever um, whatever it is that you're going through, whether you've been widowed or bereaved in any way. So after I'd lost the baby, I became a part of like the sort of club of women who have lost babies. And I knew of a lot of people and I would often go in and comfort them. I felt like I had a kind of like a, a golden ticket just to walk in and, and help people because I had been through that. And when you go in right at the beginning, like right at the beginning when it happens, the loss is so great. There almost are no words to say. There's nothing anyone can say and there's nothing you can say to yourself. It's just like a big black hole that just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then time goes on and time goes on and different things happen in life. So for us, we, you know, we're blessed with two more children and, you know, we had a bar mitzvah, one of our kids and and life. um, And my husband lost one of his parents shortly after that. And I feel like life goes on and the loss, like I always say to people, the loss is still there. Like it's still with me right now. But that hole just gets a little bit shallower, a little bit lighter and a little bit smaller. And as time goes on, 
it's always there, but it's so much easier to live with. I don't think you get over it. I think you just learn to live with it. And I think you're so right. With most traumas, that it's like that. That the cliche is true. Time I'm is a great yeah. healer. But of course, the trauma that we experience lives on um. within us. But we learn better or worse to deal with it. And you've done tremendous by not only managing yourself, your husband and your family, but actually going out into the community and giving your wisdoms from what you had to unfortunately, unfortunately yes. experience. The, th the thing is to, I feel with loss is to be moving forwards because so many Very people much. go backwards and backwards and there is no backwards. It's just a big black hole. So <laughs> the only right. way you can go is forwards and life is so bright and cololorful and enriching and fulfilling and inspiring and there's so much That's to it. That's our photographer speaks. <laughs> there's colors, so much to true. it that you can't you can't you you have to stay in the black hole for a while but then you have to go into the light because there's so much there's Very so much true. more to come. And you and you with your work Tanya and and people can find you on on Facebook yep, can they? I'm on Facebook. And Instagram. Yep, um, yeah, I'm so yeah. Tanya Duman photography, photography yeah. and I mention it because one of the things that you particularly specialise in is photographing families and inevitably people with young families, babies, want their pictures taken. So you've sort of immersed yourself. Uh, I mean, you do lots of beautiful photography in all sorts okay. of spheres, but you really capture babies. Does that have any relevance to your loss in terms of there might sometimes be an, a situation where it sort of twings something in your head or? I do a lot of, um, before I was a photographer, I should say, I studied as a speech therapist. So I worked a lot with children. I never worked with babies. Um, and I do, I work with newborns and, and babies and crazy, crazy toddlers that you just <laughs> could never, I mean, they're great, they're amazing. I, I'm, I love working with them. I had a newborn come to me on New Year's Eve last year. <gasps> And it, I didn't even think about it. She just booked it in and it was New Year's Eve. And I thought, fine, yeah, we'll do it. I'm free. And she came to the studio. This mother, this gorgeous mother came with this beautiful little baby with like dark hair. She looked very much like she could be one of my babies. And I was wrapping her and I just started crying. And she says, everything OK? And I said, I hope you don't mind me sharing. I said, but it's just so weird. It's New Year's Eve and I'm sitting here with this tiny, lovely baby. And it's actually it would have been my daughter's bat mitzvah. And, and then she started crying. And thank Aww. God the baby didn't cry. So there's just these little there bits. There are always moments. Um, yeah. But I, I look, I mean, I look back and I, and I, it, it makes me happy. It's not, it's not a happy experience, but it's built me. It's made me into someone that I would not be without having gone through that. It gives you a greater depth of Definitely. humanity and understanding and empathy and feeling, yeah. And like you say, Tanya, I mean, both Noemi and I have been in awe at your, at how candid and honest and open you've been with this experience which you obviously didn't want to have you didn't choose to be challenged this way but have tried to make it something for the good in your life um, which is always easier to say when it's written down on paper when you're not the person who's been through that with our Jewish Mother Me podcast one of the things that we look at is the takeaway wisdom that we get from the Jewish mothers who've been before us we've talked about our own mothers and grandmothers we've talked about people in the public eye people we've met but you're somebody who even though you're younger than both of us by dint of terrible circumstance but that was the card that was dealt, have had to acquire wisdom that you wouldn't have otherwise acquired. What can you offer people about how to not even just handle their own loss, because I think you, you've really sort of explained that, but how other people should deal with people 
who are experiencing loss. Because a lot of people don't you think of fingers and thumbs. Some people go as far as crossing over the street Mm. or they don't know whether to phone. what can you, if there's a, just a couple of things you could, if, with your wisdom, your Jewish mother wisdom, what would you just advise? I don't feel I'm in a position to give wisdom, but I can tell you from my experience that I still have a box in my bedroom and in it I have all the handwritten notes that people wrote to me. It was a time before smartphones and maybe it's a good thing it was before then and the comfort, people... It's hard often to walk into a space and know what to say or how to approach somebody. But the letters that people wrote me, I'll always have them. And if, you know, if on the anniversary I decide that I want to sit and read them, I do. And I'll always have that box of memories of the people who, you know, who really cared. And if anybody wants to give comfort to somebody, I would say putting pen to paper. Um, and if they want to reach out to you, they know that you're there. Yes. But I think that sending a WhatsApp or, or a voice note or a thing on Facebook, it's not the same. No, I, I think that there's... We've, we've so we have to be brave that, yeah. and do the personal, the human touch. But I've taken away your wisdom from you today. Oh. <laughs> and it's, it's looking at the new dawn and new beginnings. Every day, God gives us a new day. And it's time to refine our strength and to what we call it, press the reset button and have a chance to gain new strength and look at that and begin to climb out of that deep, dark hole that you mentioned. And I think you've done mm-hmm. that, that so beautifully yeah. and risen into the sunshine and given us some today <laughs> and hope you. and inspiration. <laughs> you Thank really you. have, Tanya. So. Um, You've been listening to uh, Tanya Duman uh, talking very openly about her, her experience of the loss of her daughter Nama and, and as she says, and finding a way to look towards the light. Not everybody's able to do it after a week, a month, a year, but it's just this idea of trying to find a way to look forward while acknowledging what came before. We hope, Tanya, you know, that having talked to us today, I don't know if it helps. I mean, the fact is that um, one final thing I would say is that there is still a taboo over stillbirth in the way people argue about miscarriages becoming more mainstream. People talk about it at the other end of the spectrum, nothing to do with babies, but menopause is very much now talked about. Stillbirth is something people are scared of talking about. And much as you would never have chosen to have been somebody who would have that wisdom, is there a way we can combat that taboo? I feel very much in the wake of COVID and basically most people falling apart in their own way. Post-COVID is an amazing place to be because people are talking more about experiences, about their mental health, about things that they've been through. And I think that the taboo is lifting on most subjects that before... You know, many of our grandmothers and aunties had stillbirths and you didn't even know about them until they just Mm. one day just were making a cake and said, oh, did you know that I had? Whereas now people are very proud and uh, and and, you know, they they wanted they want to tell their story and they want to have it out there. And I think I think things are beginning to change. Well, thank you, Tanya. Thank you, thank you so, very much. so much. We thank feel privileged me. that, you, um, <laughs> that you, you were able to share that. And we hope um, what Tanya has said, regardless of, um, as we always say, you don't have to be a Jewish mother to enjoy Jewish mother me. If anything, we want to know if every home should benefit from the Jewish wisdoms we've learned from the mothers that came before us, regardless of the star you were born under, whether whatever your circumstances are, um, mothers, kids, teenagers, rock stars we don't care who you are we just hope that we can shed a bit of light in the day from what we've learned and are still learning wouldn't you say very much so so uh, thank you so much for listening to Jewish Mother Me you can find us on Instagram 
Facebook. You can find us on all the podcast forums. And if you do want to get in touch, then drop us a note on uh, on Facebook. Uh, Noemi will be there with her pen and paper, <laughs> noting that. <laughs> dividing How them did in, she know? <laughs> dividing them into two piles, <laughs> unbroadcastable and broadcastable. Um, and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in future weeks. Until then, Tanya, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank, thank you. you. And join us soon on Jewish Mother Me. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.